0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We mentioned on last week's show that we may want to talk about uh, Mr. Millen and I's trip down to the Caribbean. We decided not to do that for a couple of reasons. The first being that New Scientist magazine has sugar on the cover for this week's issue, which we've not had the time to really go through. And we need to come back and talk about sugar in the grand sense of what it has meant to human society. And that would certainly allow us to talk about the sugar plantations that were so important to the economies of the European powers, Spain, uh, France, England, the Netherlands, etc., in a way, that white powder was like the cocaine of our present era, something that had a really high profit margin with and involved all sorts of nefarious trade to make it all work. It's a most worthy topic, but we won't go into it today. Today, we're going to try and play catch up on some stories we just didn't get to on the last couple of weeks of programming. And speaking of that, let's start with a letter to Radio Parallax that I meant to cite on last week's show we didn't get around to. Les wrote us to note that he really enjoys the show, but was rather surprised when apparently I said that Fukushima was in China. And we have to admit, that is pretty surprising. We will not try and pin that on whatever Caribbean rum had been consumed prior to the broadcast. But note that when we're speaking fast and the ideas are flowing and being kicked around, sometimes we misspeak. Fortunately, Mr. McMillan is sometimes able to catch these in editing But in this case, he may have been hampered by the fact that he thought Fukushima was in Taiwan. No, no, we we realize it was in Japan. We just got, you know, in the heat of the moment. And speaking of that, we have to also admit, uh, according to Les, that we misspoke and referred to the fact that Chernobyl was in Russia. And in fact, although Chernobyl, at the time that it blew up, was in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, that would make it today part of Ukraine. And if you know any Ukrainians, and I do know a couple, uh, it should be noted that they don't like being confused with Russians. Much in the same fashion that Canadians don't like to be confused with Americans, and New Zealanders don't like to be confused with Australians. But I will offer a very weak defense in my misspeaking on this particular issue, in that the other day in my clinic, a delivery man came by. He dropped off a package, which I signed for, and he had a bit of an accent. So so I asked, where are you from? He replied, Russia. To my follow-up question, which part? He replied, Ukraine. When I gave him a very puzzled look, he just shrugged. Admittedly, most people of foreign extraction are confused by the concept of an American that knows any geography. But as Les has proven, many Americans do. Of course that does make the assumption that Les is a yank and that, that I that I do not know anyway, he closed with <laughs> after correcting me on on both Fukushima and Chernobyl with still thanks for all the information. Well, Les you're welcome. we will try and be a little more on our toes and as promised on last week's program, we will have a visit later in today's show with Bill Wagman the alternating host of the Saturday morning folk show here at UCD. Bill will be airing an all-Pete Seeger program this coming Saturday, and we'll talk to him about that, I think, in our third segment. At this juncture, let us jump into the way we usually like to start this program, which is with On This Date in History. Our date in question is February 6th, and it is a tradition on this program to note on our first February program, that the month in question has two R's, and they are both pronounced. To which Mr. McMillan adds, if you don't believe us, go look it up in the library. At any rate, according to our source, which is Today in History, based on the History Channel's television series, it was on February 6th in 1643 that the Dutch navigator and explorer Abel Tasman discovered the Fiji Islands. To which we would add, imagine the surprise of the Fijians to, to note that Tasman had just discovered them. So yes, of course, more properly, uh, Tasman rediscovered the Fiji Islands and discovered them from the perspective of the Europeans. The Polynesians and Melanesians knew they were there. And speaking of Abel Tasman, it was on February 6th in 1836 that the English naturalist Charles Darwin then aboard the HMS Beagle, arrived in the island named after Tasman, Tasmania. Perhaps best known to Americans as the home of the Tasmanian Devil, who was an interesting predatory animal and an outstanding cartoon character. And speaking of Polynesians and explorers, and how's that for a segue, on February 6th in 1840, Great Britain signed the Treaty of Waitangi with the Maori tribes of New Zealand. The Pact protected tribal land interests in exchange for recognition of British sovereignty. And this is, in fact, uh, marked as the national birthday of New Zealand. Happy birthday, Kiwis! And speaking of Kiwis, our pal Mike Bonai, who uh, does quite a bit of shark chasing and undersea exploring himself, uh, will be coming on the program. In the weeks to come, to talk both about his efforts to protect the sharks of the world from the predatory practice of finning for shark fin soup, as well as some rather whimsical explorations he would made looking for megalodon, the giant extinct shark that some people think isn't so extinct. Um, for the record, Mike does not appear to be one of those people. But we suspect he had a hell of a lot of fun appearing in the TV special about them. All right, red letter day for voter rights. February 6, 1917, British women were granted the right to vote. At least British women over the age of 30. Why did they pick 30? We don't know. And Oh, here's one we missed. It was on February sixth in the year 1788, that France recognized the independence of the U.S., and agreed to help the fledgling nation in its struggle against Great Britain. This recognition came with the signing of the Treaty of Amity and Commerce and military assistance through the Treaty of Alliance. In May of that same year, the Continental Congress ratified them. One month later, war between Great Britain and France formally began when a British squadron fired on two French ships. During the American Revolution, of course, French naval fleets proved critical in the defeat of the British. Something a few jackasses in government forgot about some years back when they uh, tried to change the name of French Fries to Liberty Fries because the French were reluctant to get themselves involved in our fiasco in Iraq. But let us talk of happier things. Like our amusing quote of the day, which comes from our recent edition of the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series, in this case, the Book of the Dumb. The quote from Anatole France is, If 50 million people believe a foolish thing, it is still a foolish thing. Which we will supplement with our quip of the day from the same source. Wherein Steve Poliak is quoted as noting, Before we work on artificial intelligence, why don't we do something about natural stupidity? Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Conan O'Brien, who noted last week, Justin Beaver has been charged with assaulting his Toronto limo driver. The driver is reportedly suffering from minor injuries and from being the laughingstock of the Toronto limousine industry. Our anecdote of the day also comes from the Book of the Dumb, which is as follows. According to the Book of the Dumb, Valerie Faur was both a French lawyer and an avid player of the accordion, which the authors note were two facts that, when combined, would make one suspect it would be impossible for her to find a spouse, but they note, nevertheless, she was married to a man who played the violin. For fun and relaxation, the two liked to hang out in the street corners of their hometown of Bergerac and play their instruments for the amusement of passersby who may or may not drop coins into their open music case. Evidently, one day, two of those passersby happened to be French lawyers. French lawyers who became incensed that one of their own would be doing such a horrible, awful thing. Of course, this, this was the accordion we're talking about. But their reasoning was, successfully defending potential criminals is one thing, but playing an accordion on the street? Well, that was just tres sick. Notes the book, French lawyers have a reputation to protect, and they're not above disbarring a lawyer when her conduct is unbecoming and unprofessional. Indeed, there's a tradition of French lawyers getting the boot for extracurricular activity. As far back as 1826, a French lawyer was disbarred for performing in the theater. Because you can't have a lawyer as an actor. Notes the book, actors are professional liars. And that's not like a lawyer at all. And so it was that uh, Valerie Farr was hauled up in front of her local bar association, which suspended her from practicing law because of a penchant for playing the accordion in public. But Farr, who was a lawyer after all, filed an appeal, and her perseverance paid off. Her bar association's decision was overturned. The decision noted that fare couldn't have demeaned the professional lawyers by her accordion playing because she wasn't wearing her lawyer's robes while she was performing. So, word to the wise to all you French lawyers who like to perform in the street, just make sure you do it in casual attire. All right, we have several stats of the day. Stat number one, according to TheAtlantic.com, fewer Americans are reading books. They note a Pew Research Center poll which found that 23% of adults did not read a single book last year. That's up from 16% in 1990, and 8% as recently as 1978. Stat number two, also from TheAtlantic.com. China's government has banned food crops from being grown on 8 million acres of land. That's an area about the size of Belgium. Why? Why? The soil is so riddled with industrial pollutants. Oof. And stat number three from the LA Times. Apparently the combined wealth of the world's 85 richest people, which amounts to $1.7 trillion, with a T, is now equivalent to that held by the poorest half of the planet's population. Three and a half billion people. That's according to a study by the nonprofit group Oxfam. All right, let's see if we can do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Seeking Redemption with the news that Dennis Rodman has checked into rehab following his recent disastrous alcohol-fueled trip to North Korea. Evidently, the former NBA star claimed he was plied with drink from the minute he landed in the secret of state to stage an exhibition game and that he was drunk when he made dismissive comments about Kenneth Bae, an American missionary who'd been imprisoned in North Korea since 2012. Rodman was widely criticized for the trip, and also his public rendition of Happy Birthday to Dictator Kim Jong-un. Said Rodman's agent, Dennis came back from North Korea in pretty rough shape, adding, the pressure that was put on him to be a combination superhuman political figure and fixer got the better of him. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for fleeing the scene with uh, this item from the Sacramento Bee, which was that the Sacramento police attempted to stop a vehicle near West El Camino Avenue with a man driving, reportedly, a stolen vehicle. The driver, later identified as Esteban Arajo, led officers in a pursuit that ended near Verona Road and Garden Highway, where evidently Mr. Araujo ran from the vehicle and into the river where he tried to swim away from officers. We would add that this took place on February 2nd at which point we can confidently note that the Sacramento River temperature would be somewhere close to 51 degrees. To which I would like to add, if you've ever contemplated taking a long swim in 51 degree water, like, say, crossing the Sacramento River, we would counsel you strongly against attempting it. And indeed, Mr. Oaho, after initially attempting to swim away from the police officers, changed his mind, evidently feeling at some point that his chances in court probably weren't as bad as the water. And it was an ugly week last week for social media with the news that a Polish prisoner triggered a crackdown on other inmates after he posted a photo of a large cannabis plant that he'd grown in his cell. Yes, evidently to boast about his green thumb, Dozy Zandarski took a selfie with the plant using a smuggled smartphone and posted it to Facebook. When it went viral, prison officials searched the entire jail and seized numerous phones and other banned items from inmates. Zandarski is now under special watch to save him from the retribution of his fellow prisoners. And finally, it was both a bad and ugly week last week for trying to become a criminal mastermind with the news that an Alabama man was arrested after he ordered two pizzas to his mobile home and then robbed the delivery driver on his own doorstep. The driver told police that armed men robbed him as soon as he arrived at the house. Police quickly followed leads to the original delivery address and inside they found Michael Long, age 20, also the pizzas and the bag they came in. Noted an officer, we don't typically see a suspect call a delivery driver to their actual address to commit a robbery. How about this item from the week's Only in America file? Apparently, a Florida man has set up a legal shooting range in his backyard in a residential neighborhood. Apparently, Doug Varrier's neighbors in Big Pine Key have complained about the noise and fear of stray bullets. But evidently, Sheriff Rick Ramsey says he was chagrined to find out that state law permits shooting practice on private property. And how about this item from uh, only in war-torn Mexico? Apparently, Mexico has ended its standoff with armed vigilantes in the state of Michoacan by legalizing the militia groups. The groups were formed to fight the Knights Templar, a drug cartel that has terrorized the state for years, extorting money from business and apparently hanging women and children. The Mexican government sent troops to the state two weeks ago after heavy fighting between the vigilantes and the cartel, but the vigilante leaders say they wouldn't disarm till the cartel bosses were arrested. Now, apparently one boss is in custody and the government has agreed to transform the militias into an official government-backed rural defense corps. Analyst Alejandro Hope told the Wall Street Journal they needed to do something to save face. Yow! Anyway, we just had a Super Bowl last week. Not one of our better Super Bowls. And while this correspondent does not pretend to have uh, many insights in the area of football coaching, we're pretty sure that the sideline bong did not help the cause of the Denver Broncos. And no, I'm just kidding. The Denver Broncos apparently were not smoking dope in the sidelines, although you wouldn't necessarily tell that from the play on the field. Uh, we, in fact, think Colorado did a very smart thing in its efforts to legalize cannabis, And it should be noted that the state of Washington, from which the Seattle Seahawks come, also uh, loosened the restrictions on cannabis, but did not go so far as to make recreational use legal. So we're not really sure any conclusions can be drawn from um, the cannabis bowl. But it is worth noting, perhaps, that President Obama last week came very close to endorsing outright legalization of marijuana, noting that it's no more harmful than alcohol and saying it's unfair the vast majority of people busted for weed are black and Hispanic kids from poor neighborhoods. In an interview with The New Yorker, President Obama ruefully noted that it was well known that, quote, I smoked pot as a kid, unquote, and that he now views it as a bad habit and a vice, and he wouldn't want to see his daughters take it up. But in a major change for a president who once advocated strong enforcement of federal marijuana laws, Obama expressed qualified support for the legalization of cannabis in Colorado and Washington, saying society should not have laws for which, quote, a select few get punished, unquote. Of course, this rattled the cages of a few American goofballs, like Ed Rogers, who wrote in the WashingtonPost.com, well, what do you expect from a guy who was once the biggest stoner in his high school? Adding that, by claiming that smoking marijuana is on par with cigarettes or alcohol, the president sent a dangerous message telling kids that doing drugs is not a big deal. Well... Ed Rogers, we would like to point out that um, smoking kills about half a million Americans a year, and and drinking kills at least another 100,000 a year. And while peanut allergies killed dozens of people last year, marijuana killed nobody. Meaning that not only is cannabis safer than smoking or drinking, it's safer than peanuts. Also sounding off was a major American jackass, William Bennett, our former federal drug czar, who said, in reality, marijuana use can be addictive. Of course, Bill Bennett does know a thing about addictions. He lost, what, $8 million in casinos some years back? And when they made him drug czar, he was a chain smoker? You know, and to our knowledge, he never came out and said that uh, tobacco was addicting, even though it obviously is. You know, I have to admit, we don't talk much about President Obama on this program, which I guess in a way is a good thing. It does seem to us when we're talking a lot about our president, it's usually because he's up to no good. I did have to laugh at a cartoon showing Obama up at the speaker's lectern holding up a card that says NSA, which point he's assuring the public. And if you don't want the NSA to spy on you, well, then they won't spy on you. I don't know if any of you caught the State of the Union speech a couple of weeks back, but <sighs> what a yawner. He talked about how we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and I think everybody in the audience of Congress and at home kind of rolled their eyes and thought, yeah, sure you are. The Economist reported it by saying the State of the Union address revealed a leader hoping for something to turn up. Here's a factoid from the article that, that I did not know. According to the University of California at Santa Barbara, I don't know who down there did this study, but apparently Obama has signed fewer executive orders than any president since the Second World War. He claims he's going to start signing some now, though. Well, we'll see. The Economist also noted that Obama said that this year will be a year of action, <laughs> which they added, that in America this pledge was not regarded as the most remarkable element of the speech shows how inured the country has become to dysfunctional government. After years of gridlock, Americans have got used to the idea that the gerrymandering of the political system and the polarization of their two political parties have set the branches of government against each other, and that the checks and balances originally intended to keep the country's policy healthy have condemned it to sclerosis. All right, this might be a good time to take a short break, so let's do so. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.